Welcome to Still City Lockdown, the podcast series from the star, looking at the latest from Sheffield Wednesday and Sheffield United during these incredibly difficult times and hopefully helping to lighten the mood a little bit along the way. And if you're watching this on Facebook Live, feel free to share your thoughts in the comments below, particularly later when we come to our ongoing series of trying to put together a combined Owls and Blades 11 of the last 30 years. I'm Liam Hoden, usually the Doncaster Rovers reporter for the start, and I'm joined today by our football editor, Chris Holt, United writing pair, James Shield and Danny Hall, and our Sheffield Wednesday reporter, Alex Miller. Welcome, lads. Uh, as always, before we go live with these podcasts each week, there seems to be some sort of fresh talk about the restart of the game, or, or not, as the case may be. Today, Thursday, it's been reported that players in the EFL have been told that the chances of the season resuming are fading. Personally, I understand that this has been stretched a little bit or perhaps misconstrued, uh, but um, and players kind of remain in the dark as, as much as everybody else about whether or not the season will restart. Um, it's also been said that supporters are unlikely to be allowed into grounds until January at the earliest, which does seem a lot more realistic. Um, Alex, first of all, just looking at these reports, what, what do you make of uh, what's been said today and over the last few days as well? Yeah, it's very difficult, isn't it? Every every day or every couple of days, it it, it seems to keep changing. Um, and obviously, there's a lot lot of speculation. We, we keep going back to it, don't, don't we? It's um, I think it's impossible to tell at the minute. Um, but yeah, I mean, it sounds like there has been some sort of communication to the players, um, which is, which is only right. I think you know this is their livelihoods. You know the the situation with individual wages and, and some clubs. You know, obviously, some of them have taken a cut, some of them uh, have gone to furlough or what have you, but, you know, the, there are situations with a lot of clubs where there's appearance bonuses and there's performance-based bonuses and that sort of stuff. So, it, you know, it is, it is affecting their livelihood. Of course, they need to be kept in the loop. As you say, a little bit unclear as to as to exactly what's been said in the manner that it has been said in. Um, but, yeah, it's just it's an impossible situation. You know, it's very difficult for, for us guys to try and keep everyone abreast of it because like I say you know it's, it's changing every couple of days and it, it's just impossible really until things get a little bit clearer whenever it, that might be um it's just a case of sort of delivering what we can and um try, trying to keep abreast of everything what does seem to be um one of the big sort of tasks facing the EFL and apparently has been discussed at the latest uh, board meeting is the the situation with player contracts particularly those that are due to expire at the end of June, and apparently there's going to be a vote uh, among the PFA members uh, over whether they would be willing to go along with what the EFL have suggested. And, and apparently there's a big reluctance among EFL clubs to pay players beyond the end of these contracts, and instead they would expect them to uh, to just play anyway and see out the season. Um, and, but obviously PFA members, players being asked about whether they, um, they're willing to do this, and this could be probably the biggest stumbling block to overcome at this stage. If players turn around and go, no, we're not playing on for for effectively for free, despite the fact they've not been working over the last uh, couple of months, um, that could be the thing that really tips it over the edge and uh, and pushes into a point where the season will have to be ended. Uh, what do you make of that, Chris? Um, I, it, I don't know what to make of, of any of it, to be honest. There's that much information coming out. And... We have to take everything that we hear at a kind of face value at the minute, um, and not really know anything for certain until until it comes out from either the clubs or from the EFL itself. Um, 
the difficulty is that at some stage, and we've said this week after week, we don't know what's going to happen, but there probably is going to be a date where they, they set for a, a final decision to be made. And probably until we reach that point, then we're not going to know exactly what what we're going to do next. And we've had the situation, haven't we, with countries uh, across Europe, particularly obviously the Netherlands and, and France have, have, have cancelled their seasons and ended them. Um, but certainly Premier League-wise, uh, James, come to you first on the Premier League. That doesn't seem to be the uh, the sort of pervading uh, view here and, and with the top flight and apparently discussing this, what's been termed Project Restart tomorrow at a meeting of the Premier League Chief Executive. Well, what have you made of, uh, of that and all the talk that we've seen around this Project Restart over the last few days? Yeah, as far as I can see, uh, and from what I've been, been told is sort of contained in it, I think it's eminently sensible. I think they're quite right to plan. Uh, I would just make a point on that suggestion that EFL players uh, may well be asked to play uh, without being paid. Listen, I think it's fair to say that unless they've been furloughed, these players have been working. Uh, they've been working, albeit at home. They've been working it, you know, in, in dip, slightly different circumstances. But if their managers and their coaching staff have expected a player to stay fit and given them fitness programmes to do, they're working. So if you work, you get paid. End of. Uh, doesn't matter what industry you're in. Just coming back to the uh, the Premier League, though, uh, I think they're quite right to uh, sort of remain committed to uh, to finishing the season. Done a column on this in in tomorrow's paper, just sort of highlighting some of the issues that haven't really been raised yet that would be created uh, through the season being sort of declared null and void. And I do think that if it does reach a point when it's impossible to conclude, personally, I still think they're better off making sure this season gets finished uh, whenever that is before the next season starts. I think they can look at sort of different ways, different ways of modelling next season uh, then and sort of truncating the the whole calendar. I think that makes more sense than drawing a line under this one and coming up with some of these ridiculous sporting merit calculations that nobody quite seems to ever explain what those are. Uh, but no, the, the Premier League is quite right to plan. Uh, and, you know, as Chris and Alex have both said, and doubtless Danny will do in a minute as well, you know, it is impossible to say what's when, when it's going to return. Uh, you know, but that doesn't mean to say you can't make plans. And I think one thing this week just summed up how confused the situation is and why people shouldn't take too much notice of, of those who say, well, the season can definitely start in June or, you know, the season can't start at all. It's not going to be until late this year. When you had FIFA's chief medical officer saying that, you know, the situation now looks as if it's untenable. I can't see how the season's going to get finished then immediately you add UEFA's chief medical officer, you know, saying he doesn't see any reason why this season can't restart. It's a mess. It's confused. Nobody's to blame for that. That's just the way it is. But the Premier League's quite right to play. And we're, we have to probably take some blame for this ourselves. I think we're, I say take some blame for it. We, we want the new information. And so we're going out to try and find information from as many different places as we possibly can and picking up things from many different places we can. And, and you know, you, you're going to get different, as, as you say there, 
we had FIFA and UEFA both saying completely different things. Why would they? Why would they not be on the same page with this? You know, you would have thought that they that they would probably be working together. I know that, you know, that UEFA and and the the countries within Europe have uh, they are at it at a different point than than others than other than other continents, for instance. But you you would have you would have wondered why that they're not working on the same. You know, working on the same on the same thing, and this is why we end up getting people so confused because nobody knows, and we're we're trying to find out as much information as we can to pass on to our readership. But people have different opinions, and it's and and because there's no precedent for this, effectively everything is opinion. We don't have any, we have no facts to back it up, and they, and these are the issues that we have. And I think there's just just quickly an important sort of point to make there, and that is, yes, you would expect sort of both organisations to be working, sort of you know working on the same page, to be singing from the same hymn sheet. I think the problem is is that when I say we, I mean we is in the media rather than sort of us at the start. I think we're asking sporting bodies to solve scientific problems, and you know in science as we've all seen, it does it, you know. You don't just have to, you know, talk about COVID-19. You can talk about all sorts of sort of different scientific disciplines and different scientific theories. There's there's very rarely a consensus, even in science. So, you know, to our sporting bodies to solve problems that even scientists can't agree on, and they can't agree on because, you know, the situation constantly changes. I think it's probably probably unfair you know it's uh, it's it's the sporting bodies that need to be guided by the by the science and i think you know the scientists who ultimately are going to be the ones who give football the green light or not because if they say the health situation is is such that it would just be ridiculous to play any sport clearly it's not going to uh, it's not going to be returning anytime soon but you know, even the scientists can't can't agree so it's uh, it's a confused situation, as I say. Nobody's to blame for that. It's, uh, it's as you say, it's because we're we're in sort of unprecedented times almost. Are are we in danger? Does it, I'll open this up to anybody who wants to take it. Are we in danger of using footballers as come some kind of um like dangerous circus act or something in a bit to try and lift the lift the spirits of 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 the country? Because it, I must admit, it does feel a bit like that where the the health and safety of the footballers seems to be secondary in this, in, in a bid to try and get football being played, which we, we all admit, certainly for, it would make our jobs an awful lot easier if there was football being played, but it would lift the spirits of the, of, of the nation if, if we had something to look forward to, such as such as you know, our national sport. But I do feel like that, you know, it's almost like they're... With, the footballers are some kind of high wire acrobats or something that are being that have been brought out to, to try and put themselves in danger just to make sure everybody else is happy. I must have interesting point. Sorry, then. No, Danny, you you go. No, I was going to say, Chris, it, it, you do a really interesting point there. I mean, we we James and I spoke to George Baldock uh, yesterday. I think it was. I'm losing losing track of days in isolation, uh, and he, like every player that we've spoke to so far via Skype. Uh, since lockdown has said, you know, we're desperate to get playing, you know, we'll we'll run through brick walls to get back to back to football. But you do wonder if that is the the consensus of how these, these players really feel. Because, you know, like you said, no one 
we, we've never had this situation before. So absolutely no one knows how uh, to work through it, how to deal with it. And, you know, there's no such thing. It's all right playing behind closed doors to socially distanced fans, but how on earth are you going to do that in, in football with the players? You know, we've seen the question raised about, you know, stopping players spitting or sp- stopping players, you know, wrestling at corners or stopping them tackling or whatever. You know, you're going to fundamentally change the, the game, aren't you? Not just the way that people watch it. Uh, so I know I saw, you have to forgive me, I forgot the guy's name, but a player today came out and said, uh, actually, or an, sorry, an ex-player actually said, if someone asked me at this point to go out and play, I'm, I'm not sure I'd fancy it. You know, so how, how you know, it's it's kind of the, the accepted view for footballers to say, yeah, let's get back, you know, whatever whatever we whatever we can do, we should do it. But, you know, deep down, you know, it'll, does it only take one player to say, actually, lads, I don't fancy this. Well, you know, I, I, to, to, to say, you know, can, can, it, you know, can, can it be done? I, th- I think this is another sort of problem that everybody who sort of tries to analyse the situation gets caught up in, is that, you know, we talk about football, and as Chris just mentioned, you know, and as that sort of uh, example between the medical officers at UEFA and FIFA highlights, football doesn't speak with one voice. And I think when we talk about footballers, you know, we almost expect there to be a, a consensus among them. And there, there won't be. There'll be footballers with with different opinions on this. I think, you know, I'd, I'd venture to say that the vast majority, the overwhelming majority of them, probably would rush to, uh, to get back and probably would be really happy to play. But, you know, don't be surprised if there are, you know, if there are some who aren't. I think as well, this... It's important to remember, as you know, when we're talking about this, this is where a strong PFA comes in as well. You know, it's the it's the footballers' union, and I think if football does return in a situation being a contact sport where other businesses and other sort of industries aren't returning to normal, but footballers are expected to, I think then what should happen is that any player who turns around to his football club and, and can say, you know, I'm not happy doing this. And these are the reasons why any player who does that should then have the full protection of his union uh, or her union. If, the, if this, you know, extends to, to, to the women's game as well. Uh, and they, and they, you know, they should be protected and should be, you know, have the right to, to do that because again, you know, Clubs and players, they don't always speak with one voice either. And, you know, although players will sort of line up and tell you how desperately proud they are to to represent their football clubs, and again, in most cases they are, you know, there are sort of frictions in that relationship between players and and and, and, and their employers, the football clubs. So I think the PFA's got a got a very big role to uh, to play in this as well, to protect anybody who says, actually, I'm, uh, I'm not happy doing this. I think most of them will be, though. On my earlier point, Chris, I must admit I did feel a little bit uneasy when it, I can't remember which uh, government ministry it was that brought up the uh, the, the the possibility of um, games being played and, and measures being opened up that would allow that to happen. It did feel like a little bit of a an attempt at sort of a morale booster or something like that. But I think we've seen Alex and you touched upon this in Germany that looked very much like it was on the way back towards playing football, and now they're talking about perhaps tightening restrictions again, just as, as things seem to be at least beginning towards getting back to uh, to some semblance of normality. 
Yeah, that's right. And I think you, the, what you touch on there about <clears throat> football being used as a, a morale booster and sort of being used as a bit of a bit of light at the end of the tunnel, if you like, you know, that that's, that sounds like it's been very much the case in, in Germany. They've been sort of using the return of football as some sort of yardstick. The, the, um, on, a, on a national uh, scale, they, uh, they relaxed their... Um, lockdown measures and, and it, it sounds like the uh, the infection rate have got a uh, calculation sort of of, uh, of infection rates over there that that's um, got very high towards um, where they were before and 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 you know there's been a lot of talk I think the the meeting the should be news coming out in the next couple of hours on whether they might return to complete lockdown measures Matt Penny's obviously over in in uh, in Hamburg playing for St Pauli in the in the second tier. German football. He, you know, he, he's been training with his teammates since uh, April the seventh, so quite a long time. But from socially distanced, so that, you know, they're not like Danny's alluded to. They're not. They're not jostling. They're not tackling. There's no contact. It's sort of just uh, just fitness from a from a safe distance. A, a bit of ball work, a bit of passing work, and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, it, it, it sounds like you know that in, in Germany it was, it was things like they're opening Brook stores, they're opening uh, bicycle stores, and that sort of thing. Um, to, to keep keep people occupied, it, it, it's a big part of this. You know, there's a lot of speculation that the next stage in in every society really tackling this. And I'm not I'm not going to veer too far away from football, but it is restlessness. There's sort of been a a bit of uh, a social pressure from everyone, and quite rightly to you know this this hashtag stay indoors and this sort of thing. And it, it's become a bit of a a duty. Um, you know, as time goes on, you know. I'd, I'd imagine it's, it's going to wear off and, and people are going to get restless and the people are going to start sort of disobeying the, the orders for, for want of a better word, really. Um, yeah, I, I read something about, you know, the um, the idea of making footballers and certain entertainers into, into key workers. So they, ju- they just go back to work because they're key workers. Well, that doesn't really work. It's not, you know, my, my missus, as I mentioned a couple of times, is a nurse and, and knows that, that she's going into the line of fire and that, that she's a key worker. You can't just click, make someone a, a key worker and, and they go back to work, it, you know, there's, uh, for all the reasons that we've discussed. Um, but yeah, just very, very difficult indeed. Like I say, we, we should know in the next couple of hours, really, the uh, the results of that meeting from Germany and whether, whether football clubs are, are pegged back in, in what they've been allowed to do over the last few weeks. Just, just very quickly, and I think this is a really important point to make, though, and I accept all the arguments about football being used almost as a bit of a, you know, an experiment to see if we can do this, but you've also got to consider the wider picture. Do not be surprised that it was football that was always going to come back first. And I say that because it's not just a sport. It's a huge industry. And the one thing that I can say for certain, and I know nothing about the the epidemiology, the biology, or the science of, you know, of, of, of COVID-19. But as I've said before, what I do know is that there is one thing that will kill more than COVID-19, and that's poverty. And for doctors, nurses, the NHS, all the other frontline and key workers to continue to function, the economy's got to function as well. So we can't stay locked indoors forever. And football is a huge, huge industry as well. You know, it's not just the clubs that depend on this. It's the thousands of employees that work at football clubs. But also, it's all the other businesses that earn their living from football as well. It's the bars around grounds. It's the coach companies who run trips. It's the sandwich shops. It's the cafes. It's the takeaways. It's the, you know, it's the pubs and the clubs, as I've, as I've said. So, 
you know, football was always going to be the first for the simple reason is that it's a huge, huge money earner for this country. And also, not only is it a huge money earner, it's the nation sport as well. And everybody does need a little bit of a lift. So if you're going to come back with something first, you know, it was always going to be something that generates a huge amount of money for the economy, but also gives the, gives the country a morale boost as well. So don't be surprised that, that you know, football was always going to be the first thing that, got the, the, uh, that the government pushed in a, in a situation like this. And I think to an extent it had to be. A lot of this, in terms of this, these plans, this potential restart plan, they seem to centre around the testing of footballers and, and staff and the regular testing, We're talking about perhaps two, twice a week to, uh, to, make, uh, to keep this up and, and to make sure that it actually will work. How do we feel about the potential of football having a lot of these tests that we, we were told that there's a shortage of uh, and there's certainly a shortage of on the uh, on the front line uh, of, of with key workers. How do we feel about football potentially taking some of these tests? Obviously, they will be paying for them, but is, is, do we are, are we comfortable with that? Does anybody well, want to? Do? I mean, to, to be fair, Liam, it's, I mean it's it's probably not ideal, but you know, and I know what's going to come back at me is people will say, well, the, you know this equipment, it should be going towards the NHS, uh, you know. Football for paying for its own tests will be exactly the same people who never ask why and I, I might be shot down again because, you know, I might be getting the science wrong, but why I can go on the internet, as I've done today, not that I have bought them, but buy 20 top-grade antiviral masks, and yet apparently the government can't. Apparently, you know, health trusts can't. So these things are available. We've seen this where you've had private individuals, uh, you know, buying masks in from China when, you know, we're told that we can't get them into the country. Suddenly, you know... Here's a job lot. There you go. Nobody questions that. Nobody asks why people in this country can't get them in the first place. So, you know, I don't think if I can go online and order myself a COVID-19 test, which I can, I don't see why football should, or footballers should be criticised for effectively doing the same thing. Uh, you know, I think there's a you can level criticisms on a, on a much wider scale than that. But, you know, I, I, I just think it's, you know, if football gets criticised for doing that, it's another thing just to batter it with, as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, let's be frank, I think people really want to start considering the bigger political picture. I, I tend to agree with James. Um, I, football clubs have got money and they can pay for these sort of things. The country has got money and can pay for it. We've already we've seen that money can be found for all manner of things over this past couple of months, when there apparently isn't any. There, there's money there, and if they want to get tests for the NHS, then they can get ten, tests for the NHS. They just haven't done it. So I, 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 that's not football's problem. If football, if football clubs want to test their players and they've got the money to be able to buy the buy the tests for the players, then that's entirely up to them. I guess that's the theory, but I think Alex will be probably the best place to say that the, the kind of outrage when 
Sam Whittle ended up getting hold of a test when you know there was talk about NHS workers can't get hold of one. And you know, like like you said there, it's a predictable kind of stick to beat footballers with. But it, you know, in terms of you know perception and PR and that kind of thing, it didn't look it didn't look great, did it? But like you said, if this is kind of part of a wider wider spread, you know, kind of plan to get football to get football going, then maybe people will people will understand. Who knows? But you know, football's a a tribal thing, isn't it? So you know, you can never kind of fully guarantee or fully predict how how anything will go down, really. So, sorry, just quickly, the key point there is: don't criticise Sam Winnell for getting his hands on a test. If you want oh. to criticise anybody. People who do that, they're pointing the finger in the wrong direction. They should be pointing the finger in the direction of people, you know, who are in government, who are in power, and yet can't get their hands on the same test for an NHS worker mm. or somebody else doing a, another job, like, you know, a bus driver or delivery driver who needs to be tested as well. Uh, you know, they, they should be asking why government can't do that. But to criticise Sam, Sam Winnell for mm. something that, you know, my next door neighbour can go out and do tomorrow and you know, for all I know, probably has done, is, as far as I'm concerned, it's just frankly ridiculous. The, yeah, they, 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 found, they, found that, they found that magic money tree, didn't they? Anyway, without being uh, too political. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it is, it's such a, a difficult um, PR hurdle, I think, like, like Danny says. And I, I think, I don't know, the, the, the other layer to that sort of argument about people criticising someone, someone will, as you say, James, well, any, anyone can go out and buy one of these kits, only if they can afford it. And, and you know, the, the, the 350 quid or whatever, you know, there's, again, it's not someone else's fault. If someone else got the means and, you know, if you, if you want to have that argument, then that's, that's one about capitalism and it's one about wider society. And it's one that we're certainly not going to, tackle in the next half an hour or so the other problem of course with the with the testing kits is that they're not good enough yet and and the EFL said that in a statement last week you know until the testing kits are good enough till they can get the uh, you know the, the, the percentile in, in which they're accurate up you know that they, they made it very clear in the statement that it, it wasn't going to work and and the insinuation in that statement I think was that they were going to be testing every player and they were going to be testing them Hopefully semi-regularly. So yeah, I mean, again, it's one of those impossible things, isn't it? It, it depends on which report you see with with the current testing kits, whether they're seventy percent accurate, whether they're ninety percent accurate. You know, it, it's um, it's one of those one of those very many sort of variable things that that is sort of engulfed this 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 whole situation we find ourselves in. I think just before we move on, just on Sam Winnell, I think a large amount of the criticism that he got was because of the way that he worded the message that he put out. It, it says something like, I had no symptoms, I didn't feel unwell, out of curiosity I got this test. Like, he was that bored, he just thought, oh, how much does that cost, or where did I get it from? Yeah, I'll just get a test here, just for the crack. And, and I think that's probably what uh, people were getting more annoyed about, rather than the fact that he was able to get his hands on one. On that PR point as well, obviously, we, again, we're getting criticised on here for, for even talking about football in a time like this. And, and we, we've discovered, touched on that in past episodes when such such criticism has come up. So whatever happens, there's going to be criticism from, from some sets. If we're, it, us just talking about it, uh, uh, getting criticism for that. So yeah, a very, very tough one to uh, to overcome. But we'll, 
we'll move on to something a little bit more light-hearted, um, our continued quest to put together this team combined Wednesday and United team from uh, from the last 30 years. Uh, so far, we've done the goalkeeper and the back four. Uh, I'll run through them for you now. Goalkeeper, current Sheffield United keeper, Dean Henderson. The back four, Roland Nielsen and Des Walker, Wednesday players from the 90s. Chris Morgan, the, the other centre-half, a, a United player of a little bit later on. And then another current blade, Ender Stevens. And today, we come on to the task of choosing... A central midfield, two central midfielders. We're going with a four-four-two formation, which has caused a little bit of controversy between us, but uh, we've pressed on with it regardless. So, two central midfielders. I'm going to do this thing that always brings awkward silence. I'm going to ask somebody to uh, to throw one in quickly. Who wants to go first? The central midfielder for this team from the last thirty years. John Fleck. Okay, so Liam, basically the, the debate is who's going to partner John Fleck in this team, yeah. isn't it? That, basically, that, that's what we're, you know, me and Jim could wax lyrical for, for half an hour on John Fleck. Everyone knows what he's about, you know, just put him in there now and just save us all the trouble. I thought we'd be having a debate over whether uh, it were John Fleck or Barry Bannon. Yeah, I think that debate's been and gone, mate. <laughs> is John one of your choices, but You can have it, but nobody will listen. <laughs> Is that what you're going for, Danny? John Fleck? Well, yeah. Yeah. No players ever got 10 out of 10 every week before in the history uh, of Sheffield football, have they? Not before Fleck, you know. Not before him. <laughs> no. James, is that one that you would back up? Yeah, absolutely. John Fleck, 100%. Uh, I know it's becoming a little bit loaded towards the uh, the present team, but that's possibly because it is the best. Sheffield United team that I can remember uh, in in my memory certainly the best one that I've covered so you know and John Fleck is one of the one of the best players within that uh, so he's got everything hasn't he he can he can tackle he can be a nasty little so and so but you know boy can that lad play as well uh, so yeah I, I I think John Fleck's got to be in there got, sorry Barry but you know you're not the best central Scottish midfielder. <laughs> He's done it at every level as well, Andy James. I suppose a lot yeah. of talk about, you know, you see a player in League One or the Championship and, and the debate is, oh, can they do it in the Premier League? And for some reason, you see it the other way around when a player's doing well in the Premier League. Oh, could could they do it, you know, somewhere else or whatever? You know, Flex, Flex kind of done it everywhere, hasn't he? You know, ever since he came in um, to Bramall Lane, just looked a, a class above, really. Because as you quite rightly say, Danny, I mean, one, one of the great things about John is, is that he just overcomes every challenge that, that's put in front of him. And I think it's great to finally see him sort of realising or begin to realise the potential that he had at the beginning of his career when, you know, there was so much of a fuss about this lad up in, up in Scotland. I, I mean, I actually remember getting in the car and going to watch a a victory shield game uh, between England and Scotland, purely on the basis that, you know, I wanted to see John Fleck, who was in the in that Scotland side play. Uh, you know, he was he was going to be Scotland's answer to Wayne Rooney, wasn't he? And uh, obviously, clearly, that didn't quite work out. And they're they're very very different players. I think it worked out, or it didn't work out because of you know certain things that were going on up at up at Ibrox at the time. But to see him finally realise or begin to realise his potential, as I say. I think I think it's wonderful, and you know he is he is a true true midfielder because he can do a little bit of everything. 
or, or say a little bit of everything. He can actually do a lot of everything, and you know he does it. He does everything very, very well. Beginning to say, start started adding goals as well. I mean, I suppose that over the last couple of years, that was kind of the, you know, as good as he is. If if you try and improve on, you know, what's already very good, then you think, you know, maybe can he add goals to his game? And this season, you know, in in a, a bit of a different role, uh, without that number ten, uh, he's kind of shone in that and kind of added a few goals to the game as well. So. Yeah, it'd be my fault. Big, big wave of support behind John Fleck. Alex, we'll come to you. Uh, I'm expecting a, a blue name. Uh, if he says Barry Bannon. <laughs> <laughs> well, Barry Bannon is on the, sort of, the, the show list. I'm, um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to play devil's advocate to, um, to a little extent. It's been sort of a, a running joke on, on these vods that we've done about you know the, it, it being very much the, the early... 90s into the mid 90s Wednesday side against the the current United side and and um, I, I think for for some of the the Wednesday players who who did sort of mix it in in the you know were promoted out of second division played in the first division got to what three cup finals you know third place in the Premier League all this sort of stuff for for two three four years you know the 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 United boys for and brilliant that they're doing I'm, you know I'm not decrying it for a second. But you know, there's a bit of work to do to to follow up and sort of get to the, you know, the the, the same sort of level of achievement that that some of the Wednesday boys in the early '90s did. So I'll leave that there. You know, <laughs> I like it. I like it a lot. Uh, so, yeah, I'm going to sort of stand up for the blue side a little bit. Um, <laughs> well, so I, I've got sort of a short list here. Of, I can already see. Hold you. on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> that, that was quite a good hit. Did you just throw in there? I'm just saying. I'm just saying. You know, I, I can I can already see Jim sort of sharpening his teeth on this one. <laughs> look, look. I'm not. I'm not for a second. I'm not being a, a bitter Wednesday writer, you know. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. You know, there the, there is a debate to be had there. I think. Um, shall, shall I get on to my players? Can I jump straight off that one? Yeah. <laughs> I think you have thrown a bomb in there, and I think it's uh, one that we may well indeed be coming back to over these next couple of weeks. Put the team together. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I think it's something that maybe we we might have just overlooked. It was a bit of an elephant in the room, perhaps. But anyway, I, go on then. You can throw your first player in. Which one of these players from the early nineties that have proven it over several years at the top? Are <laughs> <laughs> you going for? You're making it worse for me. You, you, I'm not going to say a name that I'm going to very much back up on that front. I've, I've got two um, that are certainly from that era. One, John Sheridan. Um, so I did it time and again in, in massive games and, um, you know, before my time, obviously, but on, on Tuesday evening, sort of sat down and watched a lot of the, the 91 Cup final um, with a, a couple of the chaps that played. Uh, Laurie Madden and Chris Turner and it, it's one of those things you, you hear about how good these players are but he was just he, he was just uh, you know some of his touches number just unbelievable uh, obviously got the goal you know absolute uh, owls icon um, another player from sort of the, the same sort of time um, got 18 England caps while he was at, at Sheffield Wednesday not quite as technically gifted as, as someone like John Sheridan 
Uh, but it would be Carlton Palmer, who was just very good at what he did, wasn't he? Sort of crashed around, broke play up. Um, and yeah, sort of a, a classic sort of English defensive midfielder came back, of course, for a, for a second spell at Wednesday. It wasn't quite as successful, but um, but yeah, they're, they're from the from the early sort of Wednesday, early 90s Wednesday side, those would certainly be two. There's John Harks in there as well, who again, you know, played a, a bit out on the right, didn't he? But um, again, in, in those big matches that Wednesday had, really, really showed up, scored at Wembley, was uh, was sort of overlooked a little bit in that 91 final for, for the job that he did with Roland Nilsson on on Lee Sharp and, and Brian Robson. Um, so, yeah, those, those three from that early 90s team uh, would be names that I'm pushing forward. I'm very, very, very glad that you said John Sheridan. That would, uh, I can show that same sort of unity, the, the, uh, the Blades uh, pair of, uh, of uh, thrown behind John Fleck. But um, John Sheridan, what a footballer he was and continued to be long after uh, he played uh, for Wednesday, I can remember him coming back to Hillsborough really towards the end of his career with Oldham, and he basically stood on the centre spot and, and absolutely dominated that midfield, um, dictated plays, just spread passes everywhere. Um, and when he had sort of legs earlier on in his career, what a player! Obviously, iconic moment in that cup final, um, that that goal and that dink off the post. But yeah, what a player! Just could do a bit of everything, but his, his passing range and his control of the ball, superb. For me, I don't see how he can't get in this team, but obviously that decision will come down to Mr Holt, uh, ultimately, uh, unless we can reach some consensus. But before we come to Chris, we'll go back to our Blades pairing and see if they've, maybe they agree with John Sheridan or maybe they've got some other players up to offer. There's... I mean, there's lots of players that I'd love to throw in. You could look at a partnership, of course, when you see how well uh, John Fleck and Oliver Norwood play together. I think another player who deserves mention, although he was probably used slightly better out wide, uh, certainly from a United perspective, was Michael Tong. I, I, I think he was vastly underrated how, how good he was. Again, you know, somebody like Nick Montgomery, very underrated, but, you know, would was absolutely selfless, stood for all the things that, you know, a good Sheffield United side should stand for. And I think, you know, it's testament, although he might not have always got the public acclaim that possibly he deserved. If you ask people who played alongside Nick, you know, he would always get that. Michael Brown, another one, you know, who I think could play anywhere uh, in the in the midfield, but to be honest, I'm trying to be sensible about it, and I'm just going to reach over here, and I can show you. I wrote this down earlier. I'm going to say I wouldn't argue with putting John Sheridan in there either. That's what I like to see. Danny, we struggle to read your writing best of time, James, especially when it's on a webcam. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's a similar theme, really. I mean, I, I had a short list, just mentioned a few other names. I mean. I had Oliver Norwood down there, which probably go down with, well with Chris, um, who's obviously done it in the Premier League, which is a very different animal now, Alex, to 20 years ago, by the way. <laughs> 20, 20 years, by the way. Um, I had, along the, you know, talk about partnerships, um, you know, we had Flecky, Flecky in there as well, you know, Paul Coots alongside him for, for 18 months was unbelievable, it's, you know, in, in the way that United played in terms of getting them going. And kind of it would tailor made to the to the role really that Ollie plays now. Uh, but my other 
kind of nomination alongside Fleck was uh, Jim mentioned there, Michael Brown. Uh, I think he scored 20, 22 goals a season, uh, 2002-2003. And from an average of about 45 yards out each, uh, you know, including a famous one against Alex's boys that's <laughs> still uh, well revered now. Uh, but in terms of the way that he kind of dragged that team along that season, obviously it was a team of, of good players and good blokes, but he was kind of the talisman for it. Uh, and to score that kind of go- that, that amount of goals from midfield in the games that he scored them in as well, uh, I think he deserves deserves an honourable mention in there. I think I think the great thing about Brownie was as well. You could see what a what a, a cracking player he was, with the fact that he totally reinvented himself as well. You know, towards the towards the end of the career. I mean, everybody at Bramall Lane remembers him as being this sort of obviously, as you said, Danny, great goal scoring midfielder. Uh, but then towards the back end, and indeed when he when he left Sheffield United to go to to go to Tottenham, I mean, he, he was looked like he was on the verge of going to Rangers uh, at the time. Uh, you know, and that would have been another great club to play for, as we've said in sort of previous episodes of this. But he went to Tottenham and became a, t- a totally different player, which goes to show just how, you know, how good Michael was. But I will stick with that. I mean, listen, I'm not going to argue with Michael Brown getting in there one little bit, but I will say, and I'll, I'll try and just show it again and, and be serious. <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to argue either if that, that central midfield ends up being... Uh, John Fleck and John Sheridan. And you know what? I think those two could play together pretty well as well. Mm. I'll throw a couple of notable mentions. I will, I, I will say very early on in his career, and he obviously went on to bigger and better things, Glenn Whelan was excellent at Wednesday for that period after he came from uh, from Manchester City, but obviously kicked on and got even better after he left. And he was another one. I saw him earlier this season for Fleetwood. Did that kind of thing, what I saw John Sheridan do all those years ago for Oldham stood in the middle of the park and just sprayed passes and brought everybody else into the game as well and does it is doing still doing a very good job at that at, at League One level. But very, very big fan of Glenn Whelan at the time. But again, the the Blades names that you mentioned, Nick Montgomery was vastly, vastly underrated uh, for the job that he did at the time. Uh, always quite always liked uh, Nick Montgomery and what, what he brought to the team and that incredible work ethic and as you say, un, un, unheralded kind of player that he brought, Michael Brown, of course, very, very uh, good player as well. And we saw what he went on to uh, at Tottenham, like you said, Jim. But Chris, getting these down into two, again, falls falls to you. It sounds like we get we might be getting a bit of consensus over uh, John Sheridan, but again, it comes... I think, comes I think this has been an easy one, to be honest, because my four, two from each team that, that I thought of have all, have all been in here. My two United players were um, Michael Brown and John Fleck, and my two Wednesday players were Carter Palmer and John Sheridan. All four of those could quite easily get in. Um, I was always a big fan of Michael Brown because, as you know, I'm a big fan of a. I'm not saying a word this time. <laughs> yeah. You know, Thanks, you know what I mean. Yeah. yeah. House, so we say. Um, Michael Brown had that bit of a streak about him, but just the way, not nasty. Just he just had a good, a great ability of winding people up and and just getting getting under their skin a little bit. But a, a really brilliant player, especially in that team. That was he was very much a player of that of that team, really. But but with enough quality to be able to 
not just be remembered for being the aforementioned type of player. Um, and John Fleck, uh, I don't think anybody, yeah, I don't think you can have John Fleck in this team. Oh, but, right, well, I'll give you that. Joe Fleck is, is in the team. That's, that's easy. Um, as James said, there was such a hype over John Fleck when he was younger. I think he broke in with the Rangers team when he was about 16 or 17. And I've got a, there were quite a lot of friends who are Rangers fans, and they were so, so hyped about this lad. They, they thought that he was going to be the greatest thing you'd ever put on a blue shirt. And even now, people who I've spoken to back home who support Rangers are like, oh, I'm so glad John Flex got to where he is now because he looked like he should have been there and he should never have been playing in League One or whatever for for the amount of time that he that he had to for for some reason. I don't know I don't know how it was that he ended up. I don't know whether it was that that he just nobody gave him gave him a chance or or whether he felt that he could possibly get out of the league with Coventry. I mean, Coventry's not a, not the worst club to be at. They're, they're a decent-sized club. So I don't know whether out of sheer loyalty he thought he was going to be able to, to go up through the divisions with them before he came to Sheffield United. But it, it, it is great to see him performing as he is in the in the Premier League, where his early career suggested he should have been playing. And now we're, we're finally seeing it. I mean, and it, because he's been around that long, and him being Scottish, he does look slightly weathered than most other people. He he looks he looks older than he is. So he he's got the he's got the ability and the talent and and what seems like now as well the stamina to be able to play in the Premier League for you know potentially another eight ten years as well. So John Flex in, and uh, the other one's not difficult either. That John Sheridan is. In fact, actually, I would have had John Sheridan in before John Fleck. If, if I'm good, yeah, good. John Sheridan is a class act, and especially that what you pointed out, Liam, there, because not being from these parts, and I tended to see a bit of John or uh, John Sheridan, kind of what he's playing for the Republic of Ireland on TV and stuff like that, but a bit more towards the end of his career as well. And as you said, he just dictated the play. Didn't let somebody else do all the running for him. Just spread the ball around with just ease. Just let let everybody do all the hard work, and you just you go there. There's a the ball, and, and that was it. But in his heyday, an absolutely brilliant footballer. I, I interviewed Ron Atkinson a couple of years ago, and um, he said that I don't think he said he was as good as. He, he says he put him on a par with Glenn Hoddle, which is as high praise as you can get, really. But that worked relatively easy, wasn't it? It was an easy one. To be fair, that was easy. Yeah. Right choice as well, I think. I think that would yeah. be a good night out as well, wouldn't it, with those two <laughs> in the team? <laughs> yeah, so John Sheridan and John Flett joined Dean Anderson, Roland Nielsen, Des Walker. Chris Morgan and Ender Stevens in our rapidly developing uh, combined Sheffield 11 from the last 30 years. Next week, come to the wide men. Uh, some very, very interesting names to come up with that. And if, the, if there's one player don't get in in particular, there'll definitely be a inquiry about that one. Uh, how, how are we? How, what, what's the balance so far? Uh, I think there's one more United player so far. 
Okay. Yeah, I've, I've, I've got a bit of a, a worry, really, that we're going to go through this, and with it being a 4-4-2, similar to what Jim said early doors about, about having full-backs rather than wing-backs, it's quite possible that we'll get through a 4-4-2 and that there won't be a serious conversation about Benny Carboni about where he fits in. Um, I think, Liam, you, you sort of mentioned whether he'd be at the top of a diamond, you know, in in, in a four-man midfield. But, uh, yeah, I'm, go- I'm going to have to sort of press that case pretty hard. Maybe next week, maybe, maybe coming in from the right, maybe. Even if he was at the tip of a diamond, Alex, that's the Mark Duffy position, so he won't get in there either, mate. So don't worry about that. <laughs> I'm a big fan of Mark Duffy, but come on. <laughs> yeah. So we've got, I think there might be some crowbarring going in in a few places, in a few of the final four places that are left, but we'll, uh, we'll have to see how that one uh, develops uh, next week. As always, if you've got a view out on the, uh, about this out on there, let us know um, who have we missed so far and, and who should we be considering over these uh, Next uh, next few weeks. At this point, I would like to throw it over to the lads to uh, highlight something that they've done that they're pretty pleased with this week. We're always pretty pleased when we do something decent. So, Danny, I'll start with you. Yeah, uh, my my highlight of the week uh, was, and it, it is a highlight, was talking to uh, a certain Billy Whitehurst for a piece, uh, which <laughs> I'm trying to work out how <laughs> how I'm going to keep it down with all the stories that he uh, that he kind of came out with on and off the pitch, uh, but that was definitely definitely one to remember and uh, one to look out for. Hopefully, hopefully I do it justice. Very lighthouse Glen Torrance legend. Yeah, we didn't mention well, we didn't mention that. I can't lie to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've heard some good stories about. I'll edit your copy, Danny. And <laughs> yeah, he'll end up in there. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, look forward to that one. Uh, Alex? A um, couple of standouts very quickly. As I mentioned briefly before, sort of did a, a watch through uh, of some of the key moments in the 91 final uh, with Chris Turner um, and, and Laurie Madden and, uh, and Alan Biggs joined us as well, which was uh, which was nice. And yeah, sort of sat there for an hour and a half and, and chewed the fat on some of the stories, some of the players and stuff from that team. Um, and then yesterday was the 10th anniversary of the, the premature death of, of Mick Prendergast. Um, and yeah, wrote, wrote sort of a long read on that, managed to speak to uh, to his sort of best friend. And uh, David Sunley, of course, he played up front with him uh, in some of those teams from the 70s. And it's, uh, yeah, it was sort of the, the, the more people I spoke to sort of painted a clearer and clearer picture about what sort of man he was and, and how much he loved Sheffield Wednesday. So yeah, really enjoyed putting that one together. James? Yeah, I, I really enjoyed uh, speaking to Simon Bellis, the, the club photographer, uh, about the promotion celebrations and asking him to choose his, his favourite picture because, of course, the anniversary, the one-year anniversary of that was on Tuesday. So that was lovely, sort of speaking to Simon about that, getting his thoughts on why he loved that particular picture. And, of course, it, it, it brought back some, some great memories as well. Uh, George Baldock. Uh, as Danny's mentioned, he's, you know he's always uh, he's always good to talk to. He's uh, he's an intelligent lad. He's, he's George, uh, and it was interesting to uh, hear him speak about his new yoga hobby uh, and why why he thinks that's going to uh, that's going to help him become a become an even better footballer. So that was great. Hopefully, as well later on tonight, if uh, if they can get back to me, the phone's just going there, so I'm thinking. Fingers crossed that was them. Uh, I'll just be uh, doing a, another highlight of the week, albeit it's one that 
that probably won't be uh, getting published until next week. But I'll uh, I'll keep that one under wraps for now. Yeah, we'll look out for that one. Uh, Chris, anything that you want to particularly shine a light on? Uh, no, as as usual, I think that everything that we come up with is is world class, and uh, very proud of all of you. Keep up the good work. <laughs> You can find all of that world-class stuff over at the star.co.uk or if when you're out and about, when you're getting your shopping, pick up a paper. Um, the, these are trying out times for, for everyone and uh, the newspaper industry is no different for that and uh, your support is very, very much appreciated. If you can offer it by going out and buying a paper or perhaps a subscription on the Star website where you'll get all that fantastic uh, content that we've just been highlighting there. Um, also, pointing towards earlier this week, um, we had a makeshift version of our uh, Star Football Awards. It should have been on Monday night, uh, a glitzy ceremony. Instead, it was just us lot chatting on here and picking out a few players of the year for, for the uh, six clubs in, in the Stars coverage patch. Uh, obviously, Wednesday United, but Rotherham, Doncaster, Barnsley and Chesterfield as well. And we also crowned a, a team of the year and a manager of the year and I'm sure it'll not take you much uh, thinking about who, uh, who took home uh, those awards but you can watch that back now on the uh, on the Stars website we'll also be doing a, uh, a podcast download of that as well that should be hopefully up uh, later today uh, there'll be also an audio download of, of this as well and we'll start doing that every week yeah as well uh, but all that's left for me to say now is thank you very much lads for uh, for jumping on this uh, Thursday tea time and um, talking us through the latest at Wednesday United uh, and thanks everybody for watching as well we'll be back at a very similar time next week as well hopefully with some more uh, news to talk about something a little bit more sort of concrete that we can uh, get our teeth into and again we'll be continuing our quest for the uh, putting this team together from the last 30 years of uh, Sheffield Wednesday and Sheffield United. But, uh, thank you very much for joining us. I will speak to you again very soon. Thanks very much.